welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Carly Sharon. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And we are here with Facundo. Thanks for being here today, Facundo. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, so um, to start off, can you just kind of briefly tell us about uh, your research? Uh, yeah, sure. So I am currently working with uh, Dr. Blake Butler. Um, he's in the psychology department. Um, however, I'm a, I'm a neuroscience student. Um, but uh, so currently we're working on a project related to sensory gating and misophonia. And we're trying to essentially find neural markers for this uh, unclassified uh, or not, not currently clinically classified uh, disorder. Okay, so I think we have many terms there that we will need uh, you to describe to us. So first, can we start telling us what gating is? Sure, yeah. So sensory gating is uh, the brain's ability to filter out uh, irrelevant stimuli. <clears throat> um, so essentially, uh, if you think of the, uh, like the cocktail party phenomenon, uh, so your ability to, I guess, uh, tune into the conversation in front of you when there's... Um, like an environment of noise, your brain's ability to do that is essentially in part due to its ability to gate or inhibit that uh, noise or that noise stimulus uh, in order to boost the um, signal of the conversation in question. So this this process is 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 very important for for perception. Um, and uh, throughout my literature, I found that this gating phenomenon or this process uh, tends to be uh, certain populations have less of an ability uh, than other populations. Uh, so for example, those with OCD, um, autism, ADHD, um, schizophrenia. So these populations have been found to have impaired abilities to um, uh, inhibit irrelevant sensory information. And it's been found to be associated with uh, their disorders as well. Um, and because uh, Dr. Butler is in like a, uh, the auditory perception field, and because I am very much interested in, in the clinical field, um, it just happened to work that uh, he he is, you know, under in in the realm where he could study misophonia, which is a like an auditory processing disorder, uh, and so that kind of kind of kills two birds with one stone. In that, it, because it's an auditory processing disorder, he's interested in it and because it's like a clinical disorder that's not currently classified I'm very much interested in it. Is this sensory gating or filtering of stimuli is just related to hearing or is it related also to other sensor sensory stimuli? Yeah that, that's a good question so it's uh the sensory gating applies to like all the senses um, however, the main method to um, measure sensory gating is with uh, like auditory paradigms. So one of the paradigms that I'm going to be using is uh, like a dual click paradigm, for example, uh, which is essentially have the participant listen to uh, multiple pairs of tones, like 100 hertz tones, and uh, you record the EEG activity. And uh, if a, a typical uh, person with typical sensory gating abilities uh, within the first tone, uh, you'll you'll see like a spike in EEG activity. However, in the Why second tone, EEG? because oh, uh, uh, electroencephalography. Um, okay. so it's basically uh, uh, measures brainwave patterns. Um, 
So it's it's essentially a method to uh yeah measure uh very like bottom up processing um of 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 brain activity. Um so the so these participants, if they were to hear two tones, the first tone, you would see a spike in EEG activity, a spike in brain activity, because like there's a there's a stimulus and, and the brain's obviously gonna respond to that stimulus. However, if you repeat that tone, like uh, it's like a five milli 500 millisecond um, interval. If you repeat it, uh, it's considered as like a repetitive stimulus. Uh, so the person or like that participant should have less of a spike in EEG activity uh, due to sensory gating. So due to this brain's ability to sort of inhibit that uh, repetitive stimulus. Um, and so that's the basis of this this paradigm that I'm going to be using, and that's essentially how uh, we've been able to find that populations with OCD, schizophrenia, ADHD have uh, an impaired gating ability because instead of them having uh, like a reduced spike in the second with the second sound, um, it's more or less not the same as the first spike, but it's um, there's less of a difference between the first spike and the second spike, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that was a really good explanation. Thank you for that. Um, can you go a little bit more into what mesophenia is? Like, what are the characteristics of this uh, disorder? Yeah, for sure. So uh, it's not in any of the, it's not like in the diagnostic manual. So you can't uh, go to your doctor and say like, oh, I'm, I'm experiencing these symptoms and they're going to be like, oh, you have misophonia. Um, however, it is becoming much more prominent in the literature. Um, essentially, it's a uh, sound processing disorder characterized by uh, an atypical reaction to certain uh, trigger sounds. Um, and it's not like your your average like, oh, like nails on a chalkboard, like ah, this 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 sucks, this sound. Um, it's it's typically human based sounds. Um, and uh, there's like a it's widely reported as like similar sounds of like uh, chewing, breathing, nail biting. Um, and uh, yeah, so sounds like these uh, evoke uh, like a fight or flight reaction or like anger, disgust, um, very intense uh, symptoms in, in, in persons with misophonia. Uh, and it could even reach the point where it's like cognitively debilitating when in the presence of these trigger sounds. Um, and in like severe cases, it could lead to social isolation uh, in order to avoid situations with trigger sounds, which is very detrimental because obviously the trigger sounds are human based. So in order to avoid the trigger sounds, you have to avoid humans altogether. Thank you, Vakunda, for that explanation. I think it's very interesting. And I'm wondering now, like, okay, so human brains evolved to be able to, like, as you described it, or like from what you described, I understand that we're evolved to be able to ignore sounds that we that are familiar to us. So once we recognize it, then the second time that we hear it, we won't uh we won't release the same amount of activity in our brains or something like that. So we're able to ignore it. However, there are there are sounds that should be uh should uh have certain response on us that tend to be even more disruptive than others. So I'm wondering if that's also something that could be 
very personal you know like there are just sounds that are annoying to me that could be not could not be uh, annoying annoyed to you because of your personal experience or they could trigger something uh or like a past experience to me so how do you make sure that this is actually uh, a disorder and not just like a reaction a normal reaction to past experiences that could be for example someone eating their nails <laughs> and then I don't know like for some reason I will hear that and I will feel that that's disrupting but it's maybe because I had like a bad experience with someone who used to bite their nails or something like that so how do you filter those things out yeah that's uh that's actually a really good question um so essentially uh the reason why it's so uh important to to do do this study or this parameter with eeg activity is because this uh measures level like the, the most basic level of processing uh that that you can or, or at least that's what we're trying to achieve is um in terms of all of the the different levels of inhibition uh it's the very first so sensory gating is at least like the the p50 is what exactly what we're measuring is um supposed to be um as soon as, as soon as you know uh the stimulus is encoded that that is the first um i guess level of inhibition uh so that goes before like conscious processing that goes before like uh i don't know it can reach other areas of the brain and uh there's some you know like uh uh re reaction to that to that sound so there it's it's um it's like a reflex essentially uh and it has nothing to do with your actual cognition um and so that's why i think this measure is important because what, what you're bringing up is very valid uh and very valid with this disorder specifically with misophonia because it, it it's it's a very cognitive ba cognitively based disorder as well where uh there could very well be uh, uh classical conditioning involved you know like they 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 cognitively associate the word with like a, a negative feeling and then um it, it 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 like there's a snowball effect and it becomes even worse yeah other certain people will have different um cognitive interpretations for sound than other people um but what's what's uh valuable with this eeg measure is that we're not uh we're going sort of before that interpretation um where like you just you're just hearing and also it's not um we're not looking at uh specific types of sounds we're literally just using a thousand hertz tones so there's not really like any cognitive interpretation involved in that either um we're just sort of <clears throat> uh seeing whether misophonics have uh less of an ability to inhibit a repetitive stimulus uh than those who don't have misophonia and if we find um, uh, results that confirm that, then maybe their inability to inhibit repetitive stimuli could contribute to their inability to be near like nail biting or breathing or chewing because um, it's been found that a lot of these trigger sounds are repetitive in nature. So you've talked about this method where you're going to measure the EEG activity. So I'm curious about how you're going to recruit participants for this um, study. Like what um, kind of criteria you'll have for selecting people to be involved in this study? Yeah, so that, yeah, that's a good question. So uh, we're excluding any participants with uh, hearing or visual impairments or with any known um, psychological disorders, um, important ones being like uh, like tinnitus, um, because that's, that's pretty like similar to 
to to what we're looking at, but it isn't exactly what we're looking at. Also, uh, one thing that's that's very good that's been implemented this year in uh, SONA, so like the the pool to recruit first year participants, is uh, we we're asking them if they've experienced uh, uh, sensitivity to sounds. So we've introduced. Uh, and I, I, at least I think so, because this is what my supervisor told me. So I'm pretty sure it's, it's going to be implemented into SONA. So they're essentially going to be filtering out uh, whether um, people in the SONA or part, uh, students in the SONA pool have a specific sensitivity, uh, a sensitivity to specific sounds. And so if they say yes, um, they'll be obviously uh, like, uh, I could look into recruiting those participants and, and seeing uh, having them do like the the miso quest questionnaire to see if they actually exhibit misophonia um so yeah the sona pool is is one area uh another area which uh my colleague uh Kate Raymond she's also a master student who's uh, essentially introduced me to 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 this to this research into this field uh she's she used uh like support groups on social medias like um like reddit forums or like facebook groups uh twitter um to in order to like recruit participants uh however her study was online uh and because mine records eeg activity they will have to be at least like in london in order to go into the lab and to uh have their eeg data recorded so yeah we we're, we're still we're still trying to figure out how we can get as many for people with the disorder as possible. So can you walk us through what you're envisioning for your experiment? So I understand that you're going to get a sample of people that is sensitive to noises and you want to see whether or not they're having, uh, they're not being able to filter out certain noises that are coming in. So you will probably put them these sounds and they will react to them. What First of all, I would like to know what you're expecting to see, which uh, results or are you expecting to see? And then I know you're part of the neuro neuroscience department. Then I'm wondering if you are expecting to link this type of reaction to certain parts of the brain or certain other conditions. Which conditions do you think they can be uh, attached to? Like. Can you walk us through what you're expecting? Because you're in your first year, so I know you haven't started your experiment, but what? how do you envision them, them happening? Yeah, so your first question, uh, which was, uh, what do you expect? So I expect uh, that misophonics or people who report having misophonia will have a reduced ability to um, gate the, the sensory information, which would translate in the data as them having more similar spikes in EEG activity between the first sound and the second sound uh, compared to controls. Um, and further, we could do a correlation and see um, because uh, misophonia can, like severity can be um, measured on a spectrum. So like between I think zero and uh, 36, I think is the new scale. It, it, it essentially the, the higher number um, the more uh, severely you experience misophonia. So we could correlate that measurement with um, the ratios between the first sound and the second sound. Uh, and so we'll be able to see essentially if the, the higher uh, the misophonic severity, the more associated with uh, that ratio, like 
that would be confirming results as well. Um, in terms of your second question as to what brain areas we're expecting to see, uh, the the thing about EEG is it's not very uh, there's not very good uh like uh space spatial localization, um, so it's it's not like fMRI where you could uh see clearly which uh, parts of the brain are being activated and which parts of the brain are playing a role. Um, so that's the one downfall to EEG activity. Uh, you can, because there are 32 electrodes, uh, you can kind of localize and see which electrodes, like, is it like in the parietal or the frontal, like which, which electrodes uh, show the most activity during like which sound, for example, and that can give you a so rough estimate. Sorry, wait, uh, that part, I think it's very interesting. If you could describe to us how actually that looks, like you bring a participant, what do you do to them? Like you connect a lot of weird things on their, on their heads. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what, what are you measuring or how's that working? Because I imagine this like very much like X-Men or like some <laughs> kind of movie. So yeah. could you, could you uh, picture that for us, please? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I haven't had the chance to actually um, record a participant for my own project, but I did get like a training session with, uh, with one of the grad students or two of the grad students. Um, and yeah, essentially, uh, there's like an electrode cap. Um, it's, it's like this, this like rubber material that has 32 electrodes on it. Uh, and so you place the electrode on the participant. Um, and there's like very, there's like measurements you have to take to see that it's like exactly, um, you know, that, that it like fits right. Uh, cause that could obviously be a confound, um, and then uh, you take the participant into the this like this like booth that you can connect uh, the the electrodes to um, and and make them active, um, and then yeah, essentially once once it's connected to the um, I guess the EEG booth and once it's on the head, you can walk out and you, there's like a screen that shows the activity um, of each electrode. Um, but yeah, it is very, very X many. It, it is a, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty intense, but uh, it's not too like, it's not like invasive or anything like that. Excellent. So once you have these measurements for each, each participant, that was the last part of my question. Sorry that I made it so long, but like, which kind of people are you or like, which kind, because you said this will be linked to certain conditions. Uh, so which kind of conditions do you think it could be linked and maybe why? So, but because um, we don't want to have participants for hours, like we, we, we don't want to take the participants time for hours, we can't have them complete every questionnaire for every disorder. Um, but that would be ideal though, because then we could see like to what extent misophonia is associated with um, o OCD and ADHD and, and, and schizophrenia and to what extent those all correlate with uh, sensory gating. But uh we we're we're going to be testing for uh misophonia and then we're excluding any participants who have a known disorder so if they have like i don't know like a like any 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 other disorder i think i'm pretty sure then they'll be excluded okay interesting uh, i'm just curious you mentioned that um for the sake of time you can't have them complete like the questionnaires for all these different disorders so i'm just wondering like in your field is there kind of a set are there set questionnaires for all these different disorders that's like used broadly by everyone in your discipline? 
Yeah, yeah. So um, the more researched the condition is, the more um, solid, I guess you could say, the um, the measurement is or the, the, the questionnaire is because misophonia isn't like currently classified. It's not like it's it's purely like a, a self-report measurement. Um, it's purely based on, you know, asking questions like, oh, um, do 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 certain sounds irritate you? Like, how do they make like, do they make you feel angry, etc. But because there is a lot of um, activity in the field uh, as of now with misophonia, the questionnaires and the measurements are constantly improving. So last year uh, I was doing a misophonia study and I was using uh, a different questionnaire that I'm using this year because one of my colleagues said, oh no, like this is the standard now, like this is a better one. It's like revamped and improved. So yeah, there's there's always, I guess, new, uh, like always seeing improvements, updates. Excellent, Facundo. So I, I keep wondering if you think there could be any uh, advent, advantage to having this this kind of of pattern. So, for example, if there was a, a nomad, uh, a nomad a group of people, and then uh, some of them will react, will have like this very basic rea reaction to noises, then wouldn't that be advantageous for that population because they'll be like more aware of their environment or things like that? Do you think there can be any any like emergent properties? out of these type of disorders? Or do you think it's only detrimental not being able to filter the sounds that are surrounding you? Oh, yeah, that's that's actually a really, really interesting question. Uh, I, I've never th thought of it specifically with misophonia. I know that with a, a very much related disorder called uh, synesthesia, where uh, you can, for example, one one sensation evokes a response in another sensation. So you like hear something and then you smell something or, uh, you know, you see a letter and then it has like a, a color. Um, some people report like having higher levels of creativity when they have this because misophonia is, is the connection is, um, I guess, emotion and audition. That's the, the um, hyper connection that's going on. Um, I, I think you, I think you raise a good point in that. Yeah. If, if, if if uh, even like the tiniest sound or like um, a sound that someone else wouldn't notice, uh, it it evokes like a strong reaction and someone with misophonia. If that's if that sound is something of danger, then yeah, for sure that could be um, evolutionary beneficial and uh, maybe something you know worth making the case of like oh, you know this is why this evolved. But yeah, I, I I've never I've never thought of it. That's 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 a very interesting question. Yeah. This is a really interesting project that you have. I'm curious what kind of drew you into this topic and how you got into this field. Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, so I uh, was in one of Dr. Butler's like second year classes, Sensation and Perception. And I thought like, wow, this is like the perfect uh, mix of um, like biology and psychology like, that I'm interested in. Um, so from then, like I asked for to be like a part of his research and then I joined his research. Um, and then he introduced me to all of the different studies that he had going on with his master's students, uh, and I came across misophonia, and I thought, uh, I've never heard of it before, and I thought it was honestly just, uh, like, fascinating, and also, like, really cool and refreshing to, to see or, like, hear of a disorder that's, like, I don't know, just widely studied, you know, and, uh, I just feel like, it, it, yeah, it's, um, 
it's 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 definitely something that I that I want to contribute to because it's so like understudied and it's not classified that like you know there's people out there that that report it and like you know it's something that it, it kind of makes you want to get down to the bottom of it yeah i'm also wondering if it's something that has uh improved or gotten worse with time <laughs> or like with you know present time where there are so many stimuli there are so many things going on out there or like maybe there maybe there are less right like maybe before humans and our ancestors used to be in the forest surrounded by birds and like many many different sounds and now we're at home we put music on so we listen to the same thing for hours or like the same song so we don't have that many interruptions so I I'm wondering if there's any effect related to how we are in the present time interacting with sound which is I can imagine that it's completely different to how it used to be or for example if you live in a city versus if you live on the fields like right like I'm wondering like I, I, I can imagine so many factors to play a role in this study but I think still feel like it's very interesting to have a first approach and overview of how things look yeah for sure that's that's a very good point very interesting point um I, I would agree yeah completely Facundo, uh, I think we're running out of time. This has been a very interesting interview, but before, before we leave, I would like to ask you, do you have any social media where people could hear more about your research or about you that they can contact you or look at what you're doing? Uh, yeah, sure. I have uh, an Instagram. Uh, the handle is uh, Foku, so F-O-K-U, and then an underscore. Um, and then, yeah, you could you could contact me for, from there for sure. Uh, I'd be happy to, to talk about uh, anything related to this project or just anything in general, yeah. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Carly, and my co-host was Laura. We've been speaking with Facundo, and this episode was produced by Laura. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.